With that, I want to remind us our mission. Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want people to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. He is the great God that entered humanity and died for us, rose again on the third day so that we could be free from sin and enjoy eternity with him same day in the future. With that, we are going to continue in our series through the book of Romans. We've been calling this How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. Ever wonder what Romans is about? That's what it's about. It's how God makes sinful men and women, you know, righteous in his eyes. It's about the imputed righteousness of Christ. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be Romans 6, 11 through 14 this morning. A message I'm calling a believer's battle plan against sin. As you're getting, your, getting there in your Bible, if you don't know this about me, I love movies. And the more silly the movie, the better. I really love those. One of my all-time favorite movies, Tommy Boy. Got any Tommy Boy fans? Yeah, Tommy Boy. There it is. Give it up. Yeah. If you don't know the premise of the movie, here it is. It's, it's played by uh, David Spade and the late Chris Farley. And if you know me, I'm the guy that can talk in a second language that consists of nothing but movie quotes. And this is one of my favorite ones to go to. I always go to a Tommy Boy. So if you know the, the movie and the setting in which I'm saying something, you can, you can speak my language. Well, one of my favorite scenes from that movie, there's a scene where uh, uh, Tommy, played by Chris Farley, and Richard, played by David Spade, they're, they're on a sales, sales trip. And they're trying to sell brake pads for Callahan Motors, and it's not going well. It's a, it's a disaster at every turn. And they're driving down the road, and they get to fighting over the map because they're lost. Richard takes his eyes off the road, doesn't see a deer standing on the road, and wham, he hits the deer. In the next scene, it's a tear-filled scene of Tommy and Richard crying over the dead deer and, and they're just complaining and whining. And so being a couple city boys... They decide to take the dead deer and put it in the back seat of Richard's 67 Plymouth Bel- Belvedere GTX convertible. They drive away. You probably know the scene. Well, then they go to another sales call, and it is just a disaster. And as a former sales rep in, in, in years past, it just brings me to tears when I watch how horribly bad that sales call is. And they get back in the car, and they're driving down the road, and they're fighting again because everything's going wrong. And... Tell you what, let's just go ahead and watch it. Roll that, that clip if you would. That guy might not call us. Can't believe he called me a psycho. Hey, were you in there just now? You are a psycho. Good God. And comb your hair. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say you did much better. Thought you were so cool. Watch and learn, he says. Well, I was watching. Know what I saw? <laughs> ah. No way that just happened. My car is completely destroyed. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) 
But sorry about your car, man. <laughs> that, I use that illustration. I've been, I've been, how can I use Tommy Boy in a sermon? Here it is. Because Paul's going to tell us we were dead, but now we're alive. Well, the deer wasn't really dead. That's where the illustration falls apart. But we were, in fact, spiritually dead before coming to Christ. But then God made a believer alive. And I just love in the sermon, or in the movie clip, you hear the deer. (sighs) That's us, right? We were dead, but then God breathed life into us, and we are alive. And with that, let's just jump into the text and see what Paul says about this. Verse 11 of Romans chapter 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Your, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. I don't know about you, but in my Christian life, there's been times I feel like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's how I feel. If you don't know that illustration, what I'm talking about, years ago there was a book called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and and in it, this scientist, this professor, he creates this potion, and when he takes it, he becomes a monster. He becomes Mr. Hyde, but, but when he's not on that potion, he is Dr. Jekyll, and everything's good. That's our struggle as Christians. When we live for Jesus, we are Dr. Jekyll. But when we live for our old, fallen, decrepit, sick, sinful nature, there's no depths of depravity we're incapable of committing, and thus we are Mr. Hyde. Here's the truth. Every believer should know the struggle that I'm talking about here. Now, here's the deal. My struggle is different than your struggle, and your struggle is different than my struggle, but the truth is we all struggle. And the battle never stops. It never stops. It's consistent and aching and just going on and on. And this is a battle that we all want to win. And this is a battle that we must win. Because in this battle, there really is no second place. I guess there is. That's really just the first loser. But losing this war, it's not an option. The Bible teaches that every single believer, they have three enemies. Okay, three enemies that we're at war with, and these enemies are going to try to mess you up and trip you up every step of the way. And they're going to do everything imaginable so that you don't live your life for Jesus. They're going to try to pull you down a path that makes you live for the opposite of Jesus. Okay, and these three enemies that I'm referring to is the devil, the world, and your flesh. Okay, this is what I want you to know. The devil in the world, they're not going away anytime soon. Okay, there's some things we can do to minimize them, but they're not going away anytime soon. And the truth is you have very little control over those enemies. But the third enemy, your flesh, if you're a believer, you have the ability to be in complete control over your flesh. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't feel like I'm in complete control of my flesh. Well, here's what's going on with that. That's on you. 
Because Jesus has done everything and then some so that you can be in complete control of your flesh. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. Let's talk about the the flesh, or excuse me, the devil and the world, and then we're going to talk about the flesh. The Bible says we have an enemy. His name is the devil, Satan, Lucifer. And he is, he, 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 he wants your destruction is what he wants. And he's not some little fat cherub in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. I think he loves it when we picture him like that. Because that's not him at all. He is very real. He is very powerful. And he is very bent on your destruction. And not only that, he has these hordes of demons that are on his side trying to take you out at every turn. And then there is the world. Okay, the world that is the, is the system that is around us, okay? It, it's about what we see and hear and taste and smell. And it's all wonderful, but it's not all helpful. In fact, a lot of it's deeply hurtful. And we have this desire to de- embrace the, the world and everything in it. And if you're thinking, not me, I, I don't have a problem with that. Well, then you have a problem with lying too. And then we have our flesh, Okay? And this is what I want you to know, that the devil and the world wouldn't be nearly as powerful as they are if we didn't have this flesh nature inside us that tries to pull us away and to the world and to the the devil. And and that really, they all three team up and they want to lead us away like the rats by the Pied Piper, if you remember that old nursery rhyme. There's this old saying, and it's very true, that God loves you. And God has a wonderful plan for you. But the opposite is true too. That Satan hates your guts. He has a miserable plan for your life. Okay? The question in facing this battle is how do we win? How do we win this battle? Well, fortunately, there is a battle plan. That is Romans chapter 6. It's exactly what we're studying now. And we are at war with our sin. Okay? Well, in order to win a war, you must have a plan. For every single believer, okay, war, sin is attacking you like guerrilla warfare. If you don't know about guerrilla warfare, guerrilla warfare is where there's an ambush attack, that it hides and it strikes and it ambushes and then it retreats and hides again and it waits for a while and then it attacks again. Over and over and over. That's how sin attacks us. And it's never going to stop. And the only answer to defeat guerrilla warfare is complete and total annihilation. That's the only, only way to defeat that enemy. So today, here, this morning, I want to give you a four-step process for winning this war with sin. I'm going to give you four points. I'm going to have four phrases. I'm going to have four words. And if we can memorize these and then, even better yet, apply these to our lives, it will help you in winning this war with sin. Okay? Let's just jump right into it. Look in the text again. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. The word of God says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one. Knowledge is power. Anybody ever heard that before? Knowledge is power. And here's the word. I've got it written up on the board for you there. Reason. If you can remember that, reason. And reason has to do with knowledge because knowledge and what you have in Christ as a believer is where this whole thing starts. It's not where it ends, but it is where it starts. If you want to defeat sin in your life, then there are some things you need to know. 
Okay, if you have a problem with your car, don't come see me. Okay, if your truck breaks down on the side of the road, I am not the guy you want coming to your rescue because I don't know what it takes to fix it. I have a basic knowledge of a combustion engine, but I can't fix it. So in that, I don't know enough to help you. Okay? There's things you need to know about the Christian life, what you need to know what you have in Christ if you're going to defeat sin. If we go back to verse 3 of Romans chapter 6, Paul says, do you not know? Okay? And then go to verse 6. He says it again. He says, we know. And then if we go to verse 9, he says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead. So do you hear this word being repeated over and over again? He's saying, I want you to know this. I want you to know this. I want you to know this. That's where victory begins. There are certain things you need to know. If you want to grow in Christ, there are things you need to know. Okay? That's where it starts. No great military leader goes into battle without knowing certain things. He he doesn't just go out and fight a battle. A general must plan. He must strategize. He must assess his assets. He also must assess his enemy's assets and his tactics and be familiar with his enemy before he ever engages in battle. Well, you and I, if you're a believer, we're at war. I know it doesn't seem like that because we get so distracted with the world and everything going on, and this is how my life should be going, and my kids are doing this, and my job's doing that, and this is all this nonsense that really matter to us, but not in the grand scheme of God's glory. We forget that we're at war. Men and women, believers, hear me, we're at war. We're at war with not only our flesh, but the world that wants to lead people to hell. Here, listen, listen to what Peter says about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. The apostle Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Do you see that's what we should be doing? We should be growing in, our, in, our, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But too often, that's not what we're doing. We're doing the opposite of that. Read what Hosea says about this in Hosea 4, verse 6. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. People are not destroyed from a lack of commitment. They're not destroyed from a lack of dedication. They're not destroyed from a lack of love. They are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Remember the day when Jesus said to the Sadducees, he said, you're wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So this is where it all begins. It all begins with our mind. It all begins with what we know, right? Maybe you're the one that's thinking, well, I've been to a lot of Bible studies. I've been in church a long time, and I've read the Bible how many times? And that's all good. We should be doing that. It doesn't end there. That's not, that's not enough. You can't go to enough Bible studies to eradicate sin in your life. You can't go to enough Bible studies just become this spiritual giant. That's not the end, but that is where it starts. If we go back to verse 3 of Romans chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Okay? We need to know that our old life, it's over. It's gone. It's put out of business. The past is over. And that's one thing that baptism symbolizes. 
When you're baptized, you're lower below the water. You're saying, this is what Jesus did for me. But it's also symbolizing you that you're dying to your old self. That's what it means. And you know, I think that's why some believers wait for a long time to get baptized. They're like, you know, I'm not really ready yet. I, uh, my whole life is not really over. I'm not ready to make that commitment because I kind of like my old life. Whenever I baptize somebody, I say this every single time. I say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. Because that's me. That's my life, that my old life is dead. I'm now raising to live for Jesus. I actually stole that from the pastor who baptized me. And that's a pretty good company because he stole it from the Apostle Paul because he's quoting Romans chapter 6, verse 4, which says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You see, the old me was publicly executed on an event that we call baptism. That I was in front of a church, a church about like this one. It was almost 19 years ago. And before I was dunked in a tank, I told everybody within earshot. I said, Jesus Christ is God. He is God come in the flesh. And he died for, for the sins I did. He died for me personally. That's what I was saying. And then Pastor John Shirley He took me and he lowered me below the water. He said, buried with Christ in baptism. And he left me there for 15 minutes. No, that's not what he did. That's called abuse. He raised me up. Just like Jesus was raised from the grave, he raised me up. And he said, raised to walk in the newness of life. I'm saying the old me is gone. The new me has emerged. That's why baptism is so important. If you're a believer, don't wait to get baptized. Sometimes a You know, sometimes there's reasons why sometimes a believer waits for 20 years. Don't do that. Every time we see somebody get saved in the Bible, they then get baptized who represents what's happened. It's an outward profession of an inward change. They're saying, this is what Jesus did for me. He died and he rose again. So in case you don't know this, at the end of the service, we'll be having an altar call. And if you've never been baptized, let's talk about this. Come down this aisle. Pastor Jess will be here and I'll be here and we'll talk about baptism. You know, I, I'm on social media a lot, and I'll be scrolling through, and I'll see these pictures of our men and women in, in the military. They're often some foreign land, and maybe an army chaplain shared the gospel with them, and they get, they get saved, and they get baptized right away. Maybe they get baptized in the skip loader, the bucket of some skip loader, they're getting dunked there, or maybe they're in the middle of a sandstorm, and they're, what they're saying is, I don't want to wait. They're saying, I'm all in on Jesus So that's, there's something we need to know. We need to have knowledge. But again, it doesn't stop there. Knowledge only gets you so far. You have to keep going. The second thing you need to know is not only is the old life past, but the, but the old lifestyle, it's powerless against a believer. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, not me, because my old life, it's really powerful with me, but you need to put that away. The old lifestyle has been rendered powerless because of what Jesus did. Look in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Whenever the Bible uses the term old self, that's referring to the old you. The old you, the B.C. you, before Christ. 
Paul's using that old term, that, that term, the old self to defend that old you that was in Adam before you came to know Jesus. So what happened? What happened is this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Maybe your Bible doesn't say crucified in that verse. Maybe it says destroyed. Okay? Well, the Greek word is the word karteheo. It really means to be put out of business. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that Jesus went to Satan's headquarters, went to his place of business, being the reason why he did because that's where you worked. That's where I worked. And he handed the devil a certificate that announced his death, burial, and resurrection. What he's saying, he's saying, this guy, this gal, he doesn't work here anymore. She doesn't work here anymore. They've been set free. Free to live for me. Which means I'm no longer employed by the devil. I don't work for him any longer. He doesn't call the shots in my life. And I'm so thankful because the wage of sin is death. Thank God that I was able to quit before payday. So what Jesus did, he hung this out of business sign over, over my life. God helped me to hang up the same sign. To live my life for Jesus. So there's some things I need to know. And I need to know that, that the old lifestyle has been rendered powerless. We all need to hang up that same sign. We need to know that the old life has passed. Our old lifestyle has been rendered powerless. And also, we need to know something else. That there's a new life. There's a new life that has come. Look in Romans 6 verse 9. It says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So death for a believer is like a dethroned monarch. Okay, Death used to rule my life, but death no longer has, has power over me. How? Because John, Jesus conquered the grave. That's why. Well, how did he do that? Through the resurrection. We celebrated it a couple weeks ago. It's called Easter that Jesus rose from the grave. So Jesus' resurrection becomes the power source for my victory in my life to defeat, defeat sin and shame, to defeat that old self, and to bring this new life. You know what that means? That means for the believer that the believer was dead, but now he's alive, spiritually speaking. Get the, get the deer? That's why I use that illustration. <gasps> it's alive, Right? The problem is so many Christians like to live in between. We like to live in between Friday and Sunday. We like to live in Saturday, the, that dead day, right? We lead to, like to live in between Good Friday and Easter. But Jesus, so what we're saying when we do that, we're saying, yeah, Jesus died for me. He rose from the grave, but there's real no advancing, no real life-giving um, transformation that's taking place in my life. So the first step to win the war with sin, you need to know certain truths. You need to grow. Uh, Dwight Moody used to hold his Bible. He'd hold it from the pulpit and he would say, this book will keep you from sin. But then he would say, but sin will keep you from this book. King David said it a little differently. King David said it this way in Psalms 119 verse 11. He said, I have stored up your word. That's the Bible. I've read the God's word. I've stored it up in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what David was saying. 
And this is where it begins. This is step one. It begins with reasoning. It begins with thinking. It begins with knowing God's truth and God's word. And that's the first step. But the second step, we need to move on from there. Read verse 11 again. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Point number two for us this morning. Point number two, you must understand what you know. I've added in that word reckon, reckon. So it goes beyond just head knowledge and it becomes like heart knowledge where you really understand what you know. Back when I was in school, I was really good at at math and chemistry. And the reason why I was good at math and chemistry because there's patterns. And if you can see the pattern, it repeats itself over and over and over again. And so there was times I could see the pattern that was going on. I could answer the question. I could get the question right. But the truth is, I didn't really know what was going on. That doesn't work when it comes to Jesus. Okay? You have to, it has to become like who you are in your core. Paul uses the word, says you must consider The word consider that Paul uses there is something so much stronger than I think so. Man, I hope so. I suppose so. That's not what Paul is saying. It is the Greek word logizomai. And logizomai is where we get our word logic from in English. It means to calculate. It means to estimate something to be true. It's a word of conviction. That It's a word that basically says, hey, I've heard God say it. I know it. I understand it. And it is true in my life. So there's a big difference between knowing something is true and believing something is true. Just having a knowledge isn't enough. It has to be a deep-seated conviction and a belief in something that is true. I've heard somebody once say the longest distance you'll ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. I've also heard sometimes that's how, well, it's how close somebody misses heaven. By mere 18 inches because we know something but we don't believe it to be true. We, this is, this, it has to come to where it is a part of who you are. You, you know what stops me from Gambling. Step one, I'm terribly cheap. I can't stand to lose money, so I don't ever, ever gamble. But what also stops me is I don't really know the outcome. There's times I think I know, but I know I don't know for no, and so therefore I never gamble. But like, what if you knew? Like God came and he whispered, hey, Wyoming's going to beat Alabama by 30. Well, hey, I'm all in. I'm, I'm betting on that one because I know. Why? Because God said it. You'd bet the farm if you heard that one, right? That's what we're talking about here. It's like, you know from the source, this is true. And so what happens is our theology must become our biology. We need to be convinced. We need to be convicted of these truths. And then we need to turn our knowledge into conviction that's going to lead us on from there. It's just not good enough to just simply know something. You must understand something. And when you understand what Christ has done for you, it's not going to stop in just mere head knowledge. It's going to take us beyond just simple head knowledge because Christianity is not about head knowledge. It's not about, oh, hey, who, whoever knows the most Bible scripture must be the most spiritually person in the room. No, to live this thing out, that's who, who's the most spiritual Okay, let let me use this illustration for you. This is how we should be living to sin, okay? There are certain cultures, 
if, if a family member uh, converts away from the family religion, they will consider you as dead. Like, for example, in Islamic culture where the vast majority of people are, are Muslim, if, if somebody converts to Christianity, there's times where the family will have a funeral for the family member, a literal fa- a funeral for a family member who's not dead. Even though they aren't literally dead, they're going to treat them as if they're dead. So that means no more phone calls, no more birthday cards, no more family dinners, because that individual to the family, they are dead. And so the family treats them like so. Paul is saying that's how we must treat sin. We should be saying, we're saying, hey, sin is dead in my life. I'm not picking it up again. I used to go there. I used to do that. But sin causes nothing but trouble in my life. And so we must recognize sin for what sin is. And it used to be thrilling. It used to be fun. It used to give me this high and just this so amazing. But now I see sin for what it is. It only leads to death in my life. So I'm going to treat it as if it's dead. So here's what we need to know. There's this big churchy word we throw around all the time called sanctification. And sanctification means becoming holy. It means set apart from God. But to be sanctified, or being that doesn't mean that you're never going to sin, but it does mean you never have to sin. It does mean that. There's a theologian from way back named John Stott, and he put it this way. He said, sin is inevitable, but it's never necessary. You know what that means? It means you don't have to do it. For a believer, sin is a choice. And so if that's true, we can't just keep saying, well, the devil made me do it. I couldn't help myself. Well, that person made me do that. Well, this is just am who I am. No, that doesn't work for a believer. When you are attacked, when you are in battle, when temptation comes, you say, hey, I'm not a slave to you anymore. I don't work for you anymore. Notice that Paul didn't say, hey, we'll just feel as if you're dead to sin. That's not what Paul said. We don't feel like we're dead to sin. The Christian faith is not built on feelings. Paul said, consider yourselves dead to sin. Understand it and then act on it. That's what Paul is saying. But can we see so far these two steps are all inward. It's all, hey, I need to think, and then I need to understand. That's what it is so far. And that's good. That is good, but we have to go on to there. Because the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. But we have to go on to step three. And step three is all about resistance. Read in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. To make you obey its passions. Here's point number three. You ready? Point number three. You must turn from sin and turn to God. And so I got that little word there. It says resist. Hopefully you can remember that. There are, there's facts, there's, there's certain things you need to know, that, that you have to know, and you have to know they're true. And those things that you know are true in your life, that's why Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passion. Notice the very wording that Paul uses in that, phrase, in that, in that sentence. It, it, it's, a word, it's words that, that connotate decision, that there's choice there. He says, don't let Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. 
So we, there's an element of personal control there. You know what Paul didn't say? Paul didn't say, oh, just pray that God will take that temptation away from you. I'll pray real hard that, that, that sin, you won't give in to sin. Just pray real hard that you, it won't let it happen. No, Paul said, don't let it happen. When we're tempted by sin, we have a choice to make. And we have the choice not to allow it to take over, to not let sin reign in your mortal body. So for a believer, that means you don't have to do it. So don't let it happen. Don't let sin reign. Again, sin is a dethroned monarch. It makes a claim on you, but you don't have to let it happen. But let me say this. We all struggle. Every single one of us, we struggle. And we all struggle differently. Okay? My sin is not your sin, and your sin is not my sin. But all the time I hear this, we're Christians, and I think Baptists, we might be the worst at it. We draw a line in the sand, and we say, well, these are sins that Christians struggle with, and these are sins that non-Christians struggle with. We say stuff like that. First, who gets to draw the line? Why is your line there and not somewhere else? You know what's weird when people do that? Whenever they say non-Christians struggle with this sin, it's always sins they don't struggle with. It's weird, huh? Basically, what we're saying is, well, somebody's sinning differently than I do, then they must not be a Christian. No. There is no sin outside the realm of possibility, out of the realm of temptation for a believer. You see, it's those that practice sin that give evidence they're not a believer. It's those that are willfully participating and joining. That's just who they are. But here, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, James, he gives us a little bit of information on this. This is what James says in James 4, 7. He says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So step one, Submit to God. I think that's good. I think most of us here agree that, yes, I'm submitting to God. But step two, it says, resist the devil. Okay? And when you do, step two, James says, and he will flee to you. So if you submit to God, you resist the devil, he's going to flee. But here's what I want you to know. He's coming back. Just because he attacked you one time, just because you resisted one time, doesn't mean the fight's over. He's coming back. The devil's like a bad penny. He's always turning up. You know, I, I saw, I've heard that illustration a lot. I'm like, what in the world? A bad penny? Every penny is a good penny. No, not necessarily. That is an old English reference to counterfeit money. It's fake money. It's false money. It's good for nothing. Well, that's the devil. He's worthless. Keep, flint, keep resisting him and he'll flee from you. But this is what I want you to know. The devil, he's like ants in your house. What do you do when you find ants in your house? I'll tell you what you do. This is what I do. You find them. You see them. You kill them. You clean up the mess. But you know this. They're coming back. Just because you killed ants one time doesn't mean they're not going to come back. And they're going to come through every crack and every crevice. And they're not going to stop. It's a never-ending battle. That's how it is with the devil. Now, we would never give in to ants. Oh, man, I got, I got ants in my house. I don't know what to do. You kill them. And then you clean up the mess. And then you, you know they're coming back. Let's take the same approach with the devil. When he comes, submit to God all the time. Resist the devil. He's leaving, but no, he's coming back. Here, here's just some practical advice, okay? Not terribly deep on this one, but here you go. Maintain practical proximity. 
Okay? Maintain practical proximity. What do I mean by that? I mean, don't play with sin. Stay away. If you don't want ants in your house, don't leave breadcrumbs laying all over the place, right? You clean your house. The same is true with sin. What's that mean for me? I'm going to put me under the spotlight. You know what that means for me? That means for me there are certain places I don't go. There are certain relationships I don't have. There are certain things I don't allow my eyes to see. Because if I did, that'd be like ringing the dinner bell for Satan. He'd be coming at me like a zebra coming to a, uh, a lion coming to a zebra carcass. That's what he'd be doing. So you know what I need to do and you need to do? Stay away. Stay away from sin. Now, I'm not trying to be a legalist here, but there's certain things I just can't do. Okay, there's certain thoughts I can't allow to evade my, my brain. That's why, that's why Paul says, Kate, take every thought captive. Because if I allow those things to happen, it's just a quick slip and slide right back to my old life, and I can't let that happen. Do you ever hear stories about somebody that falls into a tiger display or a gorilla display at the zoo? You ever see, hear those? You know, I've been to the zoo a lot of times, and, lot, and where, we're, the, where we're at is always way up high, and those tigers or gorillas are always way down low, and there's always a high fence, sometimes a moat in between us, and strangely enough, somebody just happens to fall in. They didn't just happen to fall in, they climbed the fence. Nobody accidentally falls into those. They did it on purpose. And here's the thing, sin is a lot like those wild animals at a zoo, they look so cuddly. They look so cute and friendly. Oh, I just want to go up and, and just go. Oh, it's going to be great. No, they're going to kill you. That's how it works. And, and, and there's, there's, as long as we stay behind the barriers, we're safe. And they can't hurt you. It's only when you go over the barriers or around the barriers or under the barriers. Now you're in danger. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, you can't stop birds from flying above your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. That's the way it is with sin. No one accidentally has an affair on their spouse. They have to choose to do that. And for a believer, God has put up fences and guardrails and sometimes even moats in our lives to keep us from sinning. But we have to choose. Don't climb over. Don't go around. Don't go over those things that are meant to protect us. So maintain a proper proximity. When you put distance between you and temptation... Just know this, that temptation likes to follow you around, likes to stick his head and go, hey, remember me? Eyes a lot of fun, right? This is what we do. Ignore it. Don't listen. But then we got to take it a step further. We have to replace. Okay? Learning to not give in to sin is a lot like being on a diet that works. Anybody want to be on a diet that works? Hey, just me. Okay, thank you. A couple of you. This is what you can't do. You just can't go, oh, I'm just going to stop eating. Good luck with that. Okay, just don't eat. No, what you got to do, step one, you got to stop eating the things that make you fat, and you have to start eating the things that help you be skinny. I mean, it's those things that taste good. Mm, don't get to eat them anymore. Sorry, that's just the way it is. Okay? So there's two steps, and there's also, with that, there's also two steps to fighting sin. Okay, you got to replace the bad with the good. It's just, it's not that you can just, will. I'm never going to do bad again. No, you have to replace it with the good. Replace the bad with the good, and then you're going to be successful. That's how it works with sin. Because when you say no to sin, you got to turn and you got to run somewhere else. Look in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Paul says, do not 
present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but, here's where the turn is, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Here's my fourth and my last point. Point number four. Grace is greater than sin. Aren't you greater? Than, aren't you so happy for that? The grace is greater than sin. And here's the word I want you to remember. Replace. So now when you take this step, the defensive battle turns into an offensive battle. You ever heard the old saying that the best defense is an overwhelming offense? It's definitely true when it comes to battling sin. The best way to deprive my old nature is to begin to cultivate a new nature, to feed my new nature. So if knowing has to do with the mind, and if considering has to do with my heart, and if resisting has to do with my will, everything I'm talking about here has to do with our walk. It's what we're doing, okay? That's the final step. We have to replace it, okay? But this is what happens. I can get so focused on the temptation. I get so focused on the sin. I just become tunneled vision. This is my life. This is something I hate about my life. I don't like it. This is what I'm doing. That I, that I forget about turning to God. What I need to do is take those blinders off and get busy serving God. I need to get busy sharing Christ and fellowshipping with believers and actually reading my Bible, open it up every day. Every day, open this up and read it. Spend like 5, 10, 15, however much long that you need to spend. Spend that every single day praying. How about this one, expanding the kingdom of God? That means evangelism, going out and telling people about Jesus. Because if you start doing these things, what happens is you don't have time to be living in sin. I'm too busy cultivating my new nature. And when I make my life more about Jesus, this is my reward. I get more Jesus. I get less John. I get more Jesus. And isn't that what you all want? I want less of me. I want more of you. There's an old great song. It says, quote, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Some of you know that song. It's so true. I need to have this upward focus. If I could just focus on Jesus, everything else just seems to melt away. If I can just maintain this pursuit of God, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what happens is these things on earth, they just, they don't matter. When you're out telling people about Jesus, this other stuff doesn't matter. When people are getting saved and families are getting, getting changed and, and husbands and wives are loving each other because they love Jesus, all that other stuff just doesn't matter anymore. There was a story I heard of a little boy that his mom tucked him into bed, and, and it was sometime in the middle of the night. He fell out of bed, hit the ground, wham, and you know what happened. All the moms know the first thing came out of his mouth. He said, Mom! Mom, being a good mom, she rushed into the room and scooped up her little baby boy and put him back in his bed and tucked him in his bed. And she said, Sweetheart, why'd you fall out of bed? Little boy said, I don't know, Mom. I guess I just stayed too close where I got in. But that's us, right? We get into this Christianity thing, but we kind of stay on the edge. What we need, we need to move on from there. We need to get away from the edge. We need to keep going. We need to grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we do that? We do that by presenting ourselves to the Lord. 
That's what Paul says in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. This is what we say. I'm yours, God. I'm yours. My life is a blank check. Use me however you see fit. You say, here's my body, I'm giving it to you. We become a living sacrifice to King Jesus, which is exactly what Paul says later in this book. Romans 12, verse one, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's where you come to God, not just one time, each and every day. Sometimes it's moment by moment saying, I'm yours, God. Use my mouth, use my eyes, use my ears, use my hands. Use me, not for me, but for your glory. I found this terribly interesting, but in my study this week, I was looking at verse, look at verse 13 again. Do you see the word instruments in that sense? Do you see it? Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. The word instruments, it's the Greek word hopalon. Probably didn't say that quite right. But it can be translated as weapons. Paul's saying don't use your members to sin as weapons or unrighteousness. Instead of letting the devil use your body part, instead of letting the devil use your mouth to tear somebody down, instead of the devil using your body parts to destroy a marriage, instead use it to glorify God in righteousness. That's what he's saying. So let's review. First, you gotta know what you know. Okay, that's simple. We have to know that we are sinners at our core, and we have to know that our sin separates us from a holy God. We need to know that Jesus came, and he came to set sinners free. We were enslaved to sin, and Jesus bought us off that slave market. And he says we're free. He bought us with his own precious blood. And once you know this, you have to apply it to your life. That's where you turn from your sin and you turn to, to Christ. But we have to know that sin is like a barking dog. It's going to bark and bark and bark and it's never going to stop. But then you have to replace these old sinful habits with a new one. Living your life for Jesus. But it's, it's because of God's grace we can yield ourselves to him. Paul's already proven in this book that we're not saved by keeping the law. And thus, believers are not under the law, but we are under grace. And so the fact that we're saved by grace does not give us an excuse to sin. That's how Paul opened this chapter. But you know what it does? It gives us a reason to obey. We're under grace, so that means sin does not have dominion or authority over us. Live your life for Jesus, and you're going to have joy that you never even imagined. But it all starts with a contrite heart with the knowledge of sin, knowing who we are, and recognizing who Jesus is. He's a great Savior. God come in the flesh, and he came to die for sinners. The Bible says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin separates us from God. But God loves you so much, he came and died for you. And the Bible has the most beautiful promise written anywhere in literature. It says that whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I would beg you to do that now. If everyone just close your eyes, bow your head, and if you're a believer, be praying for somebody that doesn't know Jesus. 
you don't know Christ, there must come this moment where you cry out to him. You say, dear Lord Jesus, I'm the sinner that you came to save. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this in the perfect name of Jesus. Amen.